1: This week on Weather Geeks, take the hot tempers inherent to any science or political discussion, combine them and give them a national stage to debate on one of the most prominent weather blogs on the web, located at the heart of the political world, the Washington Post Capital Weather Gang, based in Washington, D.C. We will discuss the nightmare that can be communicating science through the high profile public medium dominant across social media where there are no rules. All gloves are off and users can crush peers with both informed and ill-informed opinions, all while hiding behind anonymous usernames. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Thank you for joining us on Weather Geeks. My guest today is Angela Fritz, Deputy Weather Editor for the Washington Post Capital Weather Gang. Thank you for joining us, Angela.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So, you know, you we've talked on this issue in the past, and I want to just dive right in because you are right there in the midst of the political cauldron that is Washington, D.C. Do you feel science issues these days are quickly and easily politicized, particularly some of the ones we deal with on the weather and climate side?
0: Yeah, I mean, that is that is the way that it, that science goes. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate because you and I, we're, we're Kind of, you know, diehard science geeks, and and, and we love to, to talk about um, and to think about the science for what it is. But but here in DC, it's a little bit different because you know, as it should, science informs policy, um, and so you know, a lot of people are trying to make sure that our policymakers have the best information possible. And you know, depending on what angle they're coming from, uh, they may or may not be getting you know what we consider the facts. Yeah. Now,
1: let's step back before we go further into this discussion. Let's kind of step back and let you set the stage for Capital Weather Gang. I know it's a a fairly unique entity for a major newspaper. So talk about why Capital Weather Gang evolved and how you and uh, our good colleague Jason Samenow and others got involved.
0: Right. So, you know, it actually was born um, from Jason Samanow's mind, you know, about 10 years ago. And and he started it as CapitalWeather.com, which, you know, I'm not sure he thought or he realized that this was going to be so popular. But it seems like um, at least D.C. was aching for, you know, a a real... um, uh, focused weather source um, that wasn't, you know, network television. Um, and so, you know, that took off. And of course, it helped that they launched in, in 2005. And of course, the, the hurricane season was very bad that year. Um, and so, you know, things just kind of grew from there. And eventually, uh, the Washington Post saw um, what Jason and Dan Stillman um, and the other guys that were working on the blog at that time, what they were doing and all that they they had accomplished, and they said, we need this to be part of, of our operation. Um, and so that's how we got folded into the Washington Post. And of course, we couldn't be happier that that happened.
1: Now, I, I know that uh, Jason is uh, the the weather editor, and you're the deputy weather editor. How are you staffed mm-hmm. at the Capitol Weather Gang? Uh, are you, too, the sort of primary sort of Washington Post? Uh, I, I do know that you use some freelancers and some others as a part of your team.
0: Yes, yeah, we wouldn't be able to do what we do if we didn't have such a talented group of people that are are willing to devote their time, you know, a lot of time, evenings and weekends, and even during the workday, um, so that we can, uh, you know, get out the best uh, forecast and weather information possible. So, you know, Jason and I are the only two full-time uh, employees here on the Capital Weather Gang. But, you know, we've got a team of two dozen different experts, um, space weather experts, tropical weather, severe weather. Um, and so we we definitely lean on them um, to to make sure that, what we're putting out is 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 accurate and and really the best uh, the best stuff we can we can give D.C. and and even the rest of the country now because we are we have branched out. Um, You know, I just finished writing a story about the forecast in Houston. So we, we really cover a lot of things these days.
1: Yeah, no, I, that's one of the, I think you you guys do it well too. The the You, know, you and Jason are, uh, I think, and and your whole operation. I think if you aren't following or on Capital Weather Gang on Twitter or Facebook and all those places, make sure you are because uh, they aren't just covering D.C. weather. They uh, write very smart, uh, timely articles on all aspects of weather and climate for the world, frankly. And so I really yeah, appreciate yeah. what you do. Uh, I want to get back to sort of this discussion about the mix of politics and science, since that's really what I want to focus on today with you. I know, and I want to get back to climate and global warming and all the politics there. But one of the things, Angela, and I know you've noticed this too, I've actually seen weather politicized recently. You go back to last season's hurricane season, devastating hurricane season, with Harvey, Maria, there were some entities in that world that were saying that we were politicizing the hurricane forecast and warnings. What are your thoughts on that?
0: I mean, you know, we, we live in such a mm, political time, if that makes sense. You know, I, I don't think 10, 20 years ago um, we would be talking about this at all. But um Politics has has really dominated the news. I think it's dominated everyone's attention, whether whether they like it or not. And so, no matter what's going on, um, politics is going to get wrapped up in it somehow. And 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 media, um, news organizations are. Going to find a way to put a politics angle on everything because uh, you know as much as people complain <laughs> about having to read about politics, it is what they're reading. You know, um, we hear a lot of people say, "Oh, I, I don't want to hear about politics anymore," but you know, it, the clicks speak louder than the words, so to speak. So we we know that that's what people are interested in, and so it's just you know it's just the logical next step that you know. Everything we talk about, including a terrible hurricane season, um, is, is going to be politicized. But
1: it, but isn't, that, isn't there a danger there of it really endangering lives? I, I was seeing things like certain people, depending on who they listen to or consume their information from, uh, and, and we know there's a danger of confirmation bias there. I was seeing people saying, "Oh, I'm not going to prepare for this hurricane Harvey or it's not going to be as bad. They're just trying to politicize this or make it seem like it's a global warming thing." But doesn't that endanger lives if someone takes that particular perspective because of someone they listen to or because of their politics?
0: Yeah, and it it's and it it's not just weather. It's it's um it's every every kind of um, potential disaster. Now that we've got you know people writing things off as fake news, um, and and I think that the average person, perhaps they don't know who to trust. and um, something we talk about a lot is making sure that you all have trusted sources for your news and your weather and things like that. But if they don't have anyone they can trust on this, and they don't have the right resources, um, you know they're left to their peers. And if their peers are, uh, you know saying things like, oh, this is just a, a global warming hoax again, they just want to, to frighten us, uh, then, then that will lead to, that'll lead to problems. You know, you, you'll get people who refuse to evacuate um, and and people who are not taking something like Hurricane Harvey um, maybe as seriously as they should have.
1: Right. Now, kind of circling back, because you, you mentioned climate change and global warming. Mm-hmm. What do you prefer and why, climate change or global warming? Because, And the reason I ask this is that even people use the fact that some will say, oh, you change what you called it because it really wasn't happening or these types of things. I actually had a former Ph.D. student of mine at the University of Georgia that did a paper on sort of the use of the term global warming versus climate change in science journals versus the media. Uh, Where do you come down on what we call it or does it even matter?
0: You know, I'm 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 all about it. Doesn't even matter. And I use both. And and I, you know, if if someone is telling me that they don't believe that climate change or global warming or whatever you want to call it, that it isn't happening because we have different names for it, then I tell them that's a really weak argument. And you obviously have nothing substantive to say about it because, you know, we call different things uh, various names all the time. I call it climate change. I call it global warming because that is what's happening. Our atmosphere is warming um, and our climate is changing. um, And those are the facts. And so, yes, I will use them interchangeably um, and and I don't, uh, I don't feel bad about that, and I don't feel like it's misrepresenting anything in the in the argument.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think there are certainly some um, valid discussions on why those terms have become intermingled or why perhaps one became more mm-hmm. dominant. Now, you, you, you write for The Washington Post. Um, it, it's an inherently sort of political environment and geography that you cover or that you're based in. Do you find that um, because of the fact that you are The Washington Post, it makes... Feedback from your readers inherently more political, particularly when you write about perhaps something like climate change or uh, something that someone sees that has more of a political slant.
0: Yeah, I, and I think you know whenever we're talking about um, extreme weather, um, climate change, um, you know. Policy, we, we do cover um, being in D.C. is, is uh, useful because we do cover policy um, quite a bit where it intersects with, um, you know, weather and science and climate change. Um, but, yeah, so we do see a lot of feedback um, from a political angle, even if we're not writing, in a, you know, with a political angle. Um this doesn't happen with, you know, some of the local posts that we write. You know, we do a lot of really in-depth weather coverage of the um, the DMV, the D.C., Virginia, Maryland area. Um, and those things don't tend to skew political in the conversation. But when we are talking about national events, you um, Bad hurricane seasons, wildfires, droughts, um, extreme heat waves. Um, those will tend to skew into politics because, like I said earlier, whether we like it or not, you know, politics and policymaking is in everything right now. And um, and, and because of how contentious those issues are in D.C., um, that is what people focus on.
1: And speaking of that, have you noticed? I mean, you've you've been around Capital Weather. How, how long have you been at Capital Weather Gang now?
0: Four years, if you can yeah, believe it. <laughs> I, that's what I thought.
1: It's been four years. Uh, Feels and, like and, I just got here. Yeah, and 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 well, let's use this opportunity to, before I ask my next question to tell us about tell the the listeners a little bit about your background. So where where were you before you were at Capital Weather Gang, and and, and what are your credentials? Oh yeah.
0: Well, uh, right. So I have always wanted to be a meteorologist, and. Uh, I've always been fascinated by the weather and fascinated with science in general ever since I was very young. Um, I went to Valparaiso University, uh, northwest Indiana. It's kind of up by Chicago um, for my undergrad meteorology degree. Got a BS in meteorology there. You know, it's a small liberal arts school, but it just happened to have a spectacular med program. And so Absolutely. that's that's what I. Yeah. So that's that's why I went out there. Um and then after that, I really I, I wanted to broaden um, my meteorological horizons, so to speak, and and consider more of the um, global change um, and and you know geology and geophysics and get some more um, earth science involved, and so that's why I went down to Georgia Tech. Go jackets uh, to get <laughs> She's my... She's talking to a bulldog to get, here. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, I know exactly who I I'm talking to. I know you do. <laughs> uh, and so I went down to Georgia Tech in Atlanta to get my master's in earth and atmospheric science. And that was just, that was an invaluable experience just because that, um, that department is so collaborative and multidisciplinary that I felt like I wasn't just um, studying the weather, I was studying Earth, um, and so I, I really appreciated that opportunity. And I also got to, to uh, test uh, test the water in teaching, and I think that's where I decided and where I realized that um, I'm a decent communicator at the very least. And so um, I decided I want wanted to get into the public interface. Uh, so. Uh, Went to CNN, uh, did some producing there for a while, um, some writing online, cnn.com, and uh, uh, you know, fired up uh, the CNN Weather Twitter account, which was exciting. And then, uh, yeah, headed out to San Francisco then to work at Weather Underground. And then, of, of course, uh, a couple years after I was there, the Weather Channel bought Weather Underground, and so we all became one big family, which was very interesting. And then um, a few years later, then I decided to come out to DC and work for The Post. And, and that, you know, I, I love my, my weird, strange path and, you know, flip-flopping all over the country, and, and it's, been a, it's been a really fun ride.
1: And welcome back to Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm talking with Angela Fritz, Deputy Weather Editor for the Capital Weather Gang, which is an arm or division, if you will, of Washington Post, actually. Now, we're talking about. And the notes that I have here that we wrote down: politics versus science, like oil and water. And we we were talking in the first mm-hmm. segment about some of the aspects that you deal with and some of the unique aspects, particularly because you're covering not just Washington D.C. but Washington D.C. policy, politics, and even broader things. Uh, I want to kind of shift now to weather debates, and what I mean by that, yeah, yeah. Meteorologist, you know because you're in Twitter, you're active in Twitter and social media just like I am. You know that. The meteorologists can get riled up about a lot of different things, little semantic things, things that kind of matter to us as meteorologists, but the public, frankly, probably cares less about. What are your thoughts about this whole tendency for a meteorologist to go ballistic on terminology and which model is better and so forth and so forth? And the weather Twitter battles that happen that I see. What are your thoughts on some of that?
0: Yes, the weather sphere, right? That's yeah. what we call our little, our, the little bubble that and we live in. And it is the in. bubble at times. Um, it is, and you know what, Marshall? I try and stay out of that bubble. I, I don't. I monitor the bubble, <laughs> but I try and stay out of it as much as I can because you know my my responsibility is to my readers, um, and to DC, and to whoever is in harm's way. Um, for, for what we're, we're talking about at the time. And I can tell you, they, they don't care. Um, They don't care about our terminology. They don't care about, you know, our nuance and our definitions. Um, They want to know What's happening? Um, they, what is the difference between a flash flood and an aerial flood and a river flood and coastal flooding? There is no difference to everyone except meteorologists. Right. It's flooding. The water's going to be at your knees. I, you know they they don't you know, necessarily want to know where it's coming from. They just want to know what the impact yeah, and is we, And And we
1: saw an example of this, and I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, because we saw an example of this just here, 2018, with the uh, subtropical storm Alberto. Uh, oh, and, yeah. And, he, and I was telling someone, even, even my wife and some of my family member, members were asking me about that. And some were even confused by it. They were like, "Well, is it, what is it? Does that mean it's less severe? Should people not be concerned there in the Gulf as it's moving in because it's something subtropical?" What are, What are your thoughts on sort of? I, I want to actually. There are a couple. I have a list of sort of things that I want to kind of get your opinion on. So we'll just start here with subtropical. Um, does that bother you, or do is it? It is what it is, and we just need, need to do a better job of teaching people what it means.
0: No. We are not going to teach people what it means because subtropical storms have existed forever and people still don't know what that means or how it's different. Um, people don't know the difference between a tropical depression and a tropical storm and a hurricane. And this idea that we're going to, you know, magically teach um, all of the people that need to know in this country what the difference between those things Is no, that's not going to happen. What we need to do is to figure out, um, you know, terminology and um, and names for things that people can understand that are intuitive. Um, and we need to stop using our, you know, with with subtropical storm Alberto, I, I. I just Jason and I work right across from each other. And so we're constantly looking at each other and rolling our eyes. And and it's very, very difficult when the official organization, the National Hurricane Center, is putting out forecasts for something with a name that people don't understand. And that's that's kind of the name you're tied to. Right. Because it's the official organization. My my stance is, you know, for the record's do whatever you want. I understand that we need to keep data on these storms and that we need to um, have them logged in a very specific way so that research can be done and we know what's going on and we can follow the trends. But for the public-facing side of things, we need to figure, we need to do this better. We are not serving our, our audience. We're not serving our customers. Meteorology is a service industry, and if we're talking about forecasts for a storm that they don't understand, or something like subtropical, which sure as heck sounds to me like it's not as strong as a tropical sure. storm, then then we're not doing yeah, this right. Yeah, exactly.
1: And I, I think that um, there was quite a bit of discussion on that. And even during Sandy, we learned some lessons about sort of the need to sort of revisit some of the things that are written in the books in terms of protocol versus what makes sense from just a messaging standpoint. Uh, right. I want to, you, you had a pretty significant weather event recently in your area in Ellicott City with the flooding. I mean, if you haven't seen some of the yes. images coming out of Ellicott City, Maryland, suburb of Baltimore with the flooding there. And they had some flooding very similar to this a couple of years ago. And they've had some in the past as well, that, the past 100 years. I saw an article, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was in the Capital Weather Gang, where I the headline, you guys did something, you all did something very interesting. You didn't talk about, or I don't th- think you used the terminology 1,000-year event or 1,000-year flood. You framed it, I believe, in a different way. Talk about sort of the rationale of the using a different terminology to explain a big flood event.
0: Yeah, and this gets back to um, what data versus communication. Um, so the 1 in 1,000-year 1, Rainstorm is is about return period, um, and it's done by uh, estimating based on you know however much data we have um, how how likely it is how many years on average should pass between these kind of rain events. So in Ellicott City, they've had two one thousand year floods in two years, which makes no sense um, to, you know, an average reader or listener because they think, well, it's only been two years, so it's not a one-in-1,000-year event because we've had two of them in two years. Um, What it actually means is that there is a 0.1% chance that a storm of that strength, that that much rainfall, is going to occur in any given year. Um, and so, and so, to talk, what i what i I was just chatting with someone um, down in Asheville about this, what I don't understand is why we don't put those uh, return periods into more um, you know, common language, like a point one percent chance. If it's a one in one hundred storm, it's a one percent chance that it's going to happen in any given year. um and and so on. And I think, I think people do understand that they do understand, um, you know, some basic probabilities and, and, and that kind of risk assessment that goes along with it. Um, but once again, you know, our field, uh, we we're kind of obsessed with our, our terminology and our nomenclature. And it's just it's it's confusing people and certainly not helping yeah, our case. I,
1: I completely agree with you. And I, I think you guys do a, a, a good job with that. And I, I, by the way, I'm, I'm going to try to find a different term from you guys because I don't like the gender perception of that. You you people at the we- Capital Weather Gang do a very good job yeah. of that. <laughs> uh, yeah, Thank now, you. <laughs> I want to talk about derecho. You actually in D.C. experienced one, I guess, several years back now, uh, 2012, 2012 five, five, six years ago. Um, there's a sort of a variance on the definition of those a, a new definition versus old definition. D- do you find that that's a particularly difficult, difficult term to convey? And uh, particularly since D.C. experienced one, is it something that people have a better understanding of now?
0: Well, uh- and I think um, I think this goes for the vast majority of people in DC. When they hear, hear the word derecho, they think of the 2012 storm. And um, whenever we whenever we forecast um, thunderstorms with strong straight line winds, bow echoes, we we are bombarded with the "Is this going to be like the derecho?" Um, and so, in their minds, derecho is that one right. event, you know. As if it was a named storm named derecho. Um and so it's it's kind of been a process for us to uh, to kind of reeducate people to say, you know, a Doratio is a type of a type of storm, but but the the underlying uh, effects are the same: strong, damaging, straight line winds. And and I think that now that that is what people are. Um, associating ratio with, and that's exactly what we want them to do. Right.
1: So that, that's a that's an interesting marker that that has become an an event, a reference event for many people in that area. Welcome back to Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we have a wide-ranging discussion today with Angela Fritz. She's with the Capital Weather Gang of The Washington Post. If you're not following Capital Weather Gang out there in social media, where can they follow you on Twitter and some of the other social media spots, Angela?
0: Yeah, on Twitter, at Weather. Facebook.com slash Capital Weather, and you guessed it, on Instagram at Capital Weather. So hope to see you yeah, all there.
1: And I want to sort of dive back in. I, wanted, I just want to discuss some issues of the day that I think Weather Geeks listeners would be interested in, given the fact that you're positioned in D.C. and probably have your ear, ear to the ground. What Have you heard anything on the uh, issues? Uh, what's going on the latest on the issues at the GOES satellite? I, I know there in recent weeks there were some issues with one of the uh, the imagers on our, our brand new GOES satellite. Yeah. What, what's the latest yeah. right
0: so right so a little background we um there are two brand spanking new satellites up there that are just um pretty remarkable in in their technology and what they can do for us um one is the go 16 which was launched uh, a couple years ago and and the the other one go 17 was launched um recently and as they are testing you know it takes a while when you launch a satellite, it doesn't just start operating. You really have to test it. You have to calibrate it. You have to make sure that the data it's sending back is valid and good. Um, and in that process, um, NOAA scientists discovered that um, the main, really the main instrument on the satellite, the Advanced Baseline Imager, um, which is the thing that Looks, it's like the eyes of the satellite. It looks down at our weather. It takes pictures. It can see in the visible spectrum. It can see in infrared. So it's like it's like it's got night vision. Um, and it's really, really the the, the core um, the the core instrument on the satellite. It was having some trouble, um, for um, really twelve hours uh, a day, which is significant, and and that's because it cannot. Regulate the temperature when the sun is pointed directly at the instrument. So you can imagine the the satellite is looking; um, it's hovering over the equator. It's looking down at the U.S. and you know twice a day. For, for six hours uh, of time, when the sun is rising on the east or setting on the west, um, its rays are, are pointed at the satellite. And that's where they're having trouble. When, when that radiation is right on the, the instrument, um, it's getting too warm. And because of that, the data that's it's coming back with is is not right. valid. It's not good. Um, and temperature really matters in these things um, because we are dealing with with light and um, different wavelengths. And 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 the, honestly, you know, they had a really informative press conference about it, um, and and I was very happy with the way that they laid out the facts, they laid out what they knew, and they were very clear about what they didn't know. And and one of the big things that they don't know is why this is happening. Um, And, uh, of course, that also means that they may not be able to fix it. Um, And so it's not that the... The satellite is in no way crippled, Um, but for half the day, um, we are not getting good um, visual... uh, Data from the the ABI, which is really unfortunate, and I'm hoping um, that they'll be able to figure out a way to um, to either correct or adjust or or resolve that problem from. Yeah, down here. I think
1: if uh, having worked as at, at NASA and also worked closely with colleagues at NOAA. Uh, there's some smart people at both agencies, and so if, if anyone can figure it out, they they will. What, what's 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 going on yes. with the all all the f- the the federal budgets? Uh, NOAA, Weather Service, NASA, everything. I mean, there's a lot of noise. You know, when we had the political transitions and people were worried, and there's certainly these sort of budget exercises that happen every year in terms of budgets, but um, the most recent budget passed i mean that was pretty pretty good for most of the science agencies that deal with weather and climate what are you yeah
0: yeah absolutely um so it was kind of weird um i don't know if you remember we there were a, a number of threats of a government shutdown and 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 a government shutdown over various things and the budget kept looking you know they kept kicking the can down the road so to speak with um with with different um votes but Eventually, kind of out of nowhere. I mean, we knew it was going to happen, but it it happened pretty quietly. They passed a budget that, um, you know, when we looked through it, you know, it was pretty great for for the Weather Service um, and for NASA. And um, and you know, we didn't hear any complaints from NOAA or NASA, the organizations that that we follow. Um, and so, on our end, you know, the budget was kind of a uh, no big deal thing. The thing that we are interested in and we're, we're monitoring very closely is the fact that the, the National Weather Service, um, NOAA, still has NOAA still has no permanent director. Right. Um, and, and then that's something that uh, Congress has to approve. Um, The Trump administration has nominated um, Barry Myers, who is the CEO of AccuWeather in State College, Pennsylvania. Um, He has been through a round of questioning by the science committee um, on the Senate. Uh, But uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, um, Speaker of the House, has not uh, I'm sorry, Senate leader, majority leader has not um decided to call a vote on that um and so we're still watching what's going to happen you know we've heard various um rumblings here and there nothing official um nothing on the record but um it, it may or may not be coming um in, you know the next few weeks or months and so uh i guess the next question is what does that mean for noah um You know, because that's really the important question in all this. What does it do without a leader? And I'd say, you know, they they are business as usual. They know what they're doing. They've been doing this for years. They do have an interim director um, who is the deputy director. And so it's not as if there's no one. Admiral Tim
1: Gallaudet, I believe, is who you're referring to there. And he's he's a very capable colleague.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's not as if the ship is running without a captain. It's just that... um, right now, the the Trump administration's pick is not there. Um, And so um, really, it's a it's more of a political impact than an um, operational impact. If, yeah, if no, will. I think
1: the uh, NOAA is running smoothly, and they're they're good career professionals and people there that are manning the ship. They, I, th- I think, they recently also brought on Neil Jacobs on board in a very senior level position as well. So there are certainly yes. some good good people yes. there as well. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I want to pivot the discussion now, Angela, to social media. Love it or hate it. Mm. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I want to kind of come back to, (laughs) I want to
1: put a question, pose a question to you and see how you react to it. If you could describe social media's contribution to science and or political issues these days in one word, (laughs) what would that be? And I'll give you a little moment here. So in one word, what do you, what do you think, you know, and frankly, you don't have to do it in one word. What, What do you think the implication of social media has been on science and politics?
0: I I think it it injects um, a certain amount of chaos. Chaos. Okay. We'll go with that word then for
1: my original question. Okay. And and expand on on that.
0: Well, like I said earlier, love-hate. Because, you know, with science, um, there are a lot of scientists on Twitter— um, that is that tends to be, and this is just kind of my own personal observation, but it seems to be the social media um, platform of choice um, because I see a lot of scientists networking, sharing results, um, and and also being able to communicate directly with the public. and And in that way, I love it. Um, but on the flip side of that, you you're opening as a scientist, as a researcher, you're opening yourself up to the public. Um, you're opening yourself up to the public, um, skewing or misunderstanding your results um, and, and, you know, spreading quote-unquote fake news, so to speak. Um, so th- there is a love-hate relationship there um, and, for, and for politics too. I mean, on the one hand, um, Twitter is where I get the vast majority, if not all of my, um, news on, um, what's happening in politics, what's happening on the Hill or in the white house. Um, and, but at the same time, I think it's where the vast majority of misinformation comes from as well. Yes. So it's, Definitely a double-edged Yeah, I, I sword. would
1: agree with that. In, in terms of your own day-to-day activities, though, what are the best and worst things about social media? Just not so much sort of the big picture, but from your own day-to-day use of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, the best thing for me is being able to interface directly with my readers. Um, often I will look at, you know, the conversations of the day, the questions people are asking me there, and that will actually – um, that will be the seed for a story idea that I that I write about. You know, because uh, it sometimes it's not up to me what I write about. You you need to write what people are interested in. And even if even if people are asking about something that I consider to be no big deal, if I get enough questions about it, I've got a I've got to say I've got to write something about it. You know, I've got a I've got to either. Uh, Set the record straight, or explain what's going on. Um, and so, for me, it's it's a it's an invaluable tool. Um, the cons for me would be um, just the just the constant barrage of um, you know very negative criticism, um, being accused of um, politicizing things. Uh, you know, any time I talk about climate change, it, it is climate change is seen as a political topic, even though that's not, you know, how I'm speaking about it. I'm 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 writing about it from a very scientific angle. Um, what we know. What well, we don't, don't know. you think that people um, that
1: do that really are exhibiting their own? I, I often have this question and I throw out there because I, I know that you're approaching it from a science or an objective or a journalistic perspective when you're writing about climate. I, I tend to do the same thing. I often put out there into the Twitter sphere, into the atmosphere, when does skepticism on climate change by someone actually morph over into being their own bias about it? And, and, and what I mean by that, and, right. and, and Michael Mann mentioned this the other day too, when you're always skeptical in the same direction, from the same perspective about something, when does that become a bias?
0: Right. Yeah. And this is... <laughs> A bias or a, or a denial. Um, talk about nomenclature in terms. There's, there's, there also is a debate on whether we should call people who deny climate change exists uh, climate deniers or climate skeptics. And, and as Dr. Mann has said, um, you can be skeptical of everything and be a skeptic, which is what scientists should be. They should be skeptical. Um, but when you're only skeptical of evidence. That suggests, you know, that supports the fact that global warming is happening and that it's caused by human fossil fuel emissions. Then, then that turns into more of a denial, a denial that it's yeah. happening. Um, and, and so, and and on top of that, um, to to re- to react to uh, anything about climate change by saying, you know, why did why did you have to get political? Stick to weather. Um, to me that's that's kind of a head in the sand response. They'd rather stick their fingers in their ear and go, la 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 than, than consider um, what we're seeing. Um, and it, you know, it don't get me wrong, climate change is a scary prospect. It is a huge deal. We don't know how we're deal- going to deal with it. We don't have policymakers that are focusing on it. and scientists are saying that things are going to get, um, well, did you did you see the did the next, you see
1: the new uh, work that just came out suggesting that hurricanes are slowing down?
0: Right, and that's exactly what we saw in Harvey. And so, we're I think the scariest part of climate change is that we really don't know what the impact is going to be. We know it's happening, but in terms of how that how that's going to affect us in ways beyond sea level rise. Um, That's the scary part. The unknown unknowns are the scary part. And so, um, you know, storms slowing down is probably one of those things that back in the 90s, you know, researchers weren't thinking about that. And it wasn't on the radar. And so um, we're starting to uncover impacts that we didn't even know existed. Uh, And and that is is kind of the the thing that makes me anxious. And if it makes us anxious— who, uh, we, who we, know, we know a lot about the atmosphere. Um, I can't even imagine how anxious it makes people who are living in Texas with their family and they're concerned about their family's safety. And it is very easy um, to just say, well, I'm just not, I'm not going to engage with this idea um, because otherwise it would, it would, make, it would frighten me it would frighten my children, and I just don't want to deal yeah, with it. No. So I, I completely understand yeah, that.
1: I, I completely agree. We're talking with Angela Fritz of the Capital Weather Gang. She's the deputy weather editor there at one of the, I consider, best media outlets uh, out there for weather. So I really want to come in. I, I want to start wrapping this up, Angela. W- what, what do you see going forward for Capital Weather Gang and, uh, specifically and for weather journalism uh, in general?
0: For Capital Weather Gang specifically, you know, I I want to continue to expand our coverage, you know, across across the country and also you know, across the world, and and not that we're going to have a Moscow bureau of the Capital Weather Gang anytime soon, but what I mean by that is that I want to continue to and, and grow our international weather coverage. Um, Because, you know, the weather may be quiet in D.C. today, but there's, you know, a terrible, deadly flood happening in India, um, for example, or there is a typhoon that is going to make landfall in Japan, um, for example. So I really I really want to um, write more about those international weather events so that our readers know what's going on. I think they do want to know what's going on um, We've seen over and over again that Washington Post subscribers want more international coverage because they want to know what's going on in the world because they know that it affects what's going on here. Um, and I think that that weather coverage uh, just plays right along with that.
1: Yeah, I agree and I think that I I tend to find that a lot of the US public tends to be very US centric. They'll say something like, "Oh, we haven't seen many hurricanes in the last couple of uh Years or so, but I said, well, but we've seen right. some typhoons and cyclones, and uh, so I, I think right. that type of international coverage um, it would be very useful because uh, we can be fairly narrow in our view of weather and the context of climate. Now, what about just the future of weather Journal? I, mean, I know there's a an out, uh, a couple of outlets yeah. that have sprung up that probably are modeled on what you guys are doing at Kettle, you people at the Weather Capital Weather Gang. That's a, um, a word I want to try to get out of my vocabulary there. Um, yeah, the, the, yeah gang the, the, the gang members. <laughs> we've yeah, the gang members. I was gonna say I don't know that probably could have its problems, <laughs> but uh, you all have uh, I think um, spurred some uh, other organizations to think about doing some weather journalism. So w- where do you see the future of weather journalism going as in a, as a whole?
0: Yeah, you know I think it the uh, the old school model, uh, network TV uh, weather anchors, um, they are. Absolutely, still valuable. A lot of people still get their most of their weather information from the morning or evening news. Um, But we are seeing changes. The demographics on that are changing, and younger people are more in tune with things like social media and And the web. And so, (laughs) and and podcasts, absolutely. And so, I think we're we're seeing um, that shift, and I think that it's been happening since you know. The, even the early aughts, um, that, that we're seeing that shift toward digital um, and whether or not um, some of these um, old school uh, folks, the, the people who have been doing things um, the same way for decades, whether or not they can shift into that new model, into the new um, weather media regime, um, that'll that'll determine their success because we are seeing things shift. Um, and I think the success of the capital weather gang um, is just evidence yeah, of I that. Yeah, I
1: agree. And, and the fact that you it's not just your success, you're good at what you do, too. And I think that's where I want to end it today. Well, yeah, Angela <laughs> Fritz. Thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Uh, and uh, Thanks thank for you for having and me. We will see you again soon. Thank you for joining us. Hope so. Look around; you can find cars like these on Auto Trader. Like that car riding right your tail.